Amen. We praise God for our guest musician. Amen. Sister Royston, let's give her a round of applause. And we thank her. We thank her husband for coming out and for worshiping with us, for setting the, the, the spirit and setting the tone for the word of God. And we thank God, as always, for this wonderful choir and minister of music. Amen. Truly, God is good. Amen. Wow. As I just look around and survey the sanctuary and to see our, our little ones on post, ushering this morning. Amen. Let's give them a round of applause and just show them how much we appreciate them. Our junior ushers for showing such discipline and such poise, and we are so thankful to their parents for training up their children in the way that they should go. Amen. Truly, as always, it is truly a, a great honor to stand before you and just to have the opportunity to serve you, God's peculiar people, his holy nation, with the word of God. I am deeply grateful and honored to stand here by the grace of God and to do so today. And my prayer for you today, my prayer for my heart today, coincides with the prayer or with a statement we see in Psalm 119, verse 162. The psalmist said this, he says, Lord, I rejoice over your word like one who has found great spoil. And my prayer for us this morning is that God would give us the grace to leave this place rejoicing over his word as one who has just hit the lottery. Because we know that we have a greater treasure in our hands than the largest Powerball on the face of this earth. Amen? And it is to God's word that we go to Zechariah chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 9 and 10. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah is about two books back from Matthew. It's important that we go there today uh, because I don't want you to get to heaven some guy named Zachariah walks up to you and introduces himself, and you say, who are you? Say, I'm sorry, I thought you were Abraham. Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9 through 10. We know that today is Palm Sunday. That means that we're celebrating the last week of Jesus' life, that Passion Week in which he entered into Jerusalem, uh, in triumph, receiving blessings from the people. And what we want to do today is we want to go back to the original prophecy. Uh, this is the prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling. Uh, we read this account in, in, in Mark and Luke and Matthew and even in, in John. So this is a very important moment in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, we're going to go ahead today and look at what this meant, this prophecy about Jesus entering into the city triumphantly meant to Israel, to the Jews, when they first received it. 
the word of God reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Today we want to tag this text, Behold, a king worth rejoicing over. Behold, a king worth rejoicing over. I just want you to touch your neighbor, grab somebody by the hand, and just say, neighbor, Jesus, your king is worth rejoicing over. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have given us such a great gift in your son, a gift that is worth rejoicing over, a gift that is worth praising. And Father, we pray in this place that you will allow your word to be opened up into our hearts in order that we will leave this place rejoicing and saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we pray, Father God, for the one today who does not know you and who does not have the ability to, worth over, to, to rejoice over your son because they have not yet seen his worth. Father, I pray for that heart right now that you will allow a seed to be sown that Satan will not be able to pluck out, that you will allow salvation to come to their heart, not for our glory, but for your glory, in order that we can look to you and say, how mighty is the God who saves. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. As we look at the Middle East, and we look at certain parts of the world, but specifically the Middle East, we see that there is great unrest. We see that countries are in, in turmoil. As youthful protesters have begun to rebel against former, or against re, their regimes, against dictators. They are shouting out and they are parading the streets and they're saying, you know what, we want freedom. We want a, a future. We want hope. And the dictators that once ruled them or bullied them by force is now receiving that same treatment as they are saying, we won't stop protesting until you leave. And as we look at the Middle East and we look at countries like Egypt and how uh, Mubarak was forced to resign, and we even look at Libya and what's going on there and Jordan and, and all these places, uh, uh, we think, man, this is crazy. This is like nothing that we've ever seen in history. But as we read the Bible, we learn that this is not the first protest against the regime, that what's going on in the Middle East has happened before. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, that it has happened before. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that the Israelites have made up their mind to rebel against their king. And they have said to a prophet by the name of Samuel, who at the time was a, was a, was a judge, they said, listen, your sons, you are getting old, and your sons are not uh, fair judges. They said, we want a new king. And guess who their king was at the time when they said that, when they made those demands? Their king was God. 
Israel was ran, or by what, what the uh, Jewish uh, uh, historian Josephus uh, jo, said, or, or what he defined as, as a theocracy. And a theocracy is where God is the king or the governor of a people. Josephus said Israel, the Jews, was being governed or, was, or had God the, himself as their king. Had God as, as, as their king. And they said, you know what, we don't want God as our king anymore. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king that we can see. We want a king that's going to lead us into battle. They didn't want the Lord as king. They revolted against him. And then Samuel, in that eighth chapter, goes to the Lord and said, Lord, do you hear these people? And the Lord says, answer their requests. They want a king? Give them a king. But warn them of what their king will do to them. Warn them of what this uh, 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 rebellion would mean for them as a nation. We see Samuel going to the people. And he tells them, he says, you want a king? The Lord said, I can give you a king, I can anoint a king for you, but know this, the king that will rule over you, he will take the best of everything you have. He said, he will take the best of your fields. He will require you to give one-tenth of everything. He will take the best, the strongest of your sons, and have them be his servants and serve in his, in his military without your permission. He will take your daughters and have them to be his wife and his performers. And the people said, let it be so. And from that point on, from that point on, the rest is history. Israel had trouble with their kings. First they anointed a man by the name of Saul, and we know Saul just went local. He went crazy, had all kind of pride. And after Saul, we see David coming up. And David, out of all Israel's king, probably him, between him and Josiah, probably had the most sense. But even David really wasn't righteous, as we know that he made many mistakes. And after David and after Solomon, we see that, that it just goes south, south. We see Rehoboam comes in, and Israel splits into Judah and, and to Israel. And from there on, Israel just had a serious problem keeping a king. In fact, most of their kings led them to worship false gods and idols. One king by the name of Zedekiah had them offering up their children to a god by the name of Molech as a sacrifice. And finally, one day, God got fed up. And God raised up a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel. He came to Jerusalem, and he took a number of them captive, about 10,000. And that's where we read the story of Daniel. And then we see after Israel, uh, Judah and Israel still didn't repent, that God said, okay, I'm going to send more trouble. We see Isaiah warning the people, please straighten up. God is not playing with you. And they didn't straighten up. In 586 B.C., we see Nebuchadnezzar coming back and totally taking over the city, taking all the Jews back to Babylon to worship him and to be his slaves. And they did that to around 536 B.C., where God raised up a man by the name of King Cyrus. And King Cyrus, who, even though he was a pagan king, his heart was melted. And what he did is he said, listen, he uh, went to a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, who was a governor and who was from a royal lineage. 
And he says, Zerubbabel, I'm going to allow you to take some of these, uh, some of your Jews back to your homeland. And they can begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And they went back to their homeland. And then right after that, about two years after that, God raised up a man by the name of Nehemiah and a man by the name of Ezra. And God put a burden on their heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to start rebuilding or laying the foundation of the temple. And that's pretty much where we find ourselves in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 1, God tells a prophet by the name of Zechariah to call the people to repentance because he wants to restore Israel to their former glory. He wants to do something that's just so great in Israel that all the nations will have to take notice and see. And then at the same time, God raised up a guy by the name of Haggai. And Haggai came and he says, listen, y'all, we got to start rebuilding this temple because this temple is going to be as glorious as it was in the days of Solomon. See, the people thought that he was talking about the building, but he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about that one day that temple will house the very glory of God himself, one by the name of Yahshua, Jesus, Emmanuel. So we find ourselves here in Zechariah, and God has said in Zechariah chapter 8, the first nine verses, he says, in chapter 9, the first nine verses, he says, listen, I'm going to raise up a king, Israel, and this king is going to take over and punish all the nations that punished you while you were slaves, all the nations that made fun of you, all the nations that took advantage of you. This king is going to come back and he's going to sweep through this area. He's going to sweep through Persia. He's going to sweep through Tyree. He's going to sweep through Philistine, your long-lasting enemies. And he's going to tear them up and take them into bondage. And this happened about 200 years after the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. God raised up a man that we read about in our history books and we read about in history class a man by the name of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was a young man who had military strategy and wisdom like, never, like it was never seen before. And Alexander the Great, though he was a pagan king, was used by God to wipe out some of the strongest nations. In fact, one of the nations that's named Tyree, he wiped them out in seven months, fought them, came against the city and overtook them. It took the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, at his prime when he tried to take over that city because it was wealthy, it took him 13 years just to penetrate the first part of the city. And finally, after that, he had to give up. You, you may, God is good, isn't he? God could raise up something and somebody to do something that you and I could never do. The favor of the Lord outweighs what we can do in our own strength and our own might. So now God, in this text, is comparing and contrasting this great king, this great nation, who's going to sweep through with an even greater king that will one day restore Israel back to their hope. And that's what we read in chapter 9, in chapter nine verse 9, these words. We read that, Jesus, that, the, that the, uh, the writer, Zechariah, he says, Listen, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. He's saying rejoice greatly, shout aloud, because there is an even greater king that's going to come after this other king. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Jerusalem. When was the last time you rejoiced greatly? When was the last time you just lost it in pure joy and you were sober? For some of us, it 
was in March. March 11, 2011. It's when the University of Louisville won their last game. Huh? All right. <laughs> Amen. And for others, it was January 20, 2009, when President Obama was inaugurated as the first African American history in history to be the President of the United States. We just were so happy. For others, it was probably this week when your spouse told you that they were going to take the children, they were going to be gone for two or three hours, and you realized that you had the house to yourself <laughs> to get some peace and quiet. But the Bible says, and, and Zechariah in this prophecy is calling Israel to rejoice greatly, to shout aloud because there is something great about to happen. A king is about to come, and this is a huge deal to them because they have not had a king in a very long time. They've been in slavery under a pagan king. They haven't had a true ruler since Zedekiah, who was a, a reprobate, a straight heathen, a straight pagan. They haven't had someone to call their own. And they have been looking forward to a great king. Ever since the days of Isaiah, when he talked about this coming Messiah, Messiah who will restore them and who, who, who will help them to be the largest world power. So as they are hearing this prophecy, and as they are thinking about this, they begin to rejoice, they begin to weep with hope because they know that one great is coming. And then he goes on and he begins to show us three reasons why, show them three reasons why they can rejoice over their king. And he gives us three reasons why we can leave this place rejoicing over our king. And the first reason is because our king has promised to come. Our king is, has promised to come. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we see that he says, Behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming. We can rejoice, and they, they can rejoice because they knew that the word of the Lord had just come from a prophet. And when God speaks to a prophet, especially a prophet who is proven like Zechariah, especially someone like him, they say, wait a minute, we can take this to the bank that he is going to really come. And we read in the gospel accounts as we studied in Sunday school today that this king did come. Jesus of Nazareth, of course, was and is the Messiah of Israel and of the world. We read that he was stuffed into human clothes and that he came through the womb of a virgin and he walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem for 33 some odd years. He did come. The Jews were waiting on him to come. But see, there was a little problem. The Jews, when he came, was expecting him to come a little different, and this is why. Whenever we read the prophetic word in the Old Testament and we read about Jesus or the Messiah coming, God did something in his writings in the, in the midst of this prophecy that, that was just kind of confusing but at the same time amazing. What he would do is he would kind of mix two prophecies together so that when Jesus came, people wasn't really sure if this was him, because he didn't look like he was going to totally fulfill the prophecy. And this is what I mean. In Isaiah, when we read in Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 53, we read about this humble servant who would take on the, the cares of the world and he would, who would heal Israel and restore them. Uh, but we read about him being humble, we read about him being strict, and we read about him carrying our transgressions and our burdens. But right after that, we read about him being triumphant and being a strong warrior. See, God mixed two prophecies. 
He, he mixed two different events, Jesus' first advent or his first coming and Jesus' second advent together so that even when the Jews saw him, they still had to believe in faith that it was him because there was something still that they could not see in him. So when Jesus first came on his first missionary journey, Jesus fulfilled the first part. <laughs> he fulfilled the first part. And they rejected him. We celebrated about how he came into Jerusalem triumphantly and everyone was just praising God and Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we read just a handful of days later that there's a crowd. And this crowd is saying, crucify him. And we read that as he was traveled up the Via della Rosa, which is the road of sorrow, that they mocked him and that they put a sign over his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Their king did come, but they missed what God was doing in his coming. Now we have to understand something here today. That just as God called Israel to rejoice then for something that was going to happen in the future, huh? at a time that they did not know to rejoice, to praise God on credit. God is calling us today to praise God on credit. Because when Jesus left, he left us with the same promise that Zechariah left these Jews with. And that promise is, is that he's coming back again. In John chapter 14, verse 3, he told the disciples, he says, listen, I am leaving. I am going to prepare a place for you, but I will come again. In Revelation chapter 19, we see that when John sees a vision of Jesus, the first thing that he says about Jesus in that vision of coming back, he says, oh, behold, the one who is faithful and true. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is true. And we should live a life of rejoicing because we know that he will come again, that he will return. When he returns, he will reign, and we will reign with him. We're called to respond in the same way as these people were called. We're called to respond with joy. We're called to respond with rejoicing. These Israelites, they didn't have much. They had a little bit. They started building panel houses, as we see in Haggai, but they didn't have a whole lot. But they had hope in this Messiah. And I don't care where you are right now in life, if you are a born-again Christian, blood-bought, blood-purchased, you have more to rejoice over than Donald Trump himself. You have more to rejoice over than Oprah herself. Because you have a promise from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that trouble will not last always. One of the reasons I think that it's hard for us to rejoice is because we think like, oh, man, this event is so far off. And it probably won't take place in my lifetime. I'll probably die before the Jesus, Jesus return. But see, what we, what we miss is this, is that the apostles, whenever they talked about Jesus returning, somewhere within that, that passage, you'll see them calling us to rejoice about it or calling us to, to live a, a disciplined life as a result of that truth. 
But what's interesting, when we read passages like Romans chapter 13, verse 12, we see that the apostle says, listen, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So we see that the uh, uh, apostle Paul, when he was talking about Jesus coming, he says the day is at hand. And even when we see Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, he does the same thing. He uses the same exact terminology. He says, listen, let's put off the works of darkness because the day is at hand. What day? The day of the Lord is at hand. What they're saying is that the day is near. Let us live as if that day is here today or if that day is tomorrow. Because the truth of the matter is, is we don't know when the time is. But the Bible tells us this, that when Jesus comes, he's going to come suddenly and he's going to come like a thief at the night. I don't know when my Savior's coming, so I better straighten up and rejoice and live like today is the day. And when we truly believe that he's coming back, and when we truly accept the fact that he can come back at any time in our lifetime, I believe that we won't waste time, because we've got to tell somebody about this coming king. Oh, man, y'all, y'all something else. Y'all seeking the Lord. Looking good this morning. And some of us have even pushed away some plates and went on, had the nerve to be radical enough to go on some type of fast before the Lord. And you know what? You're going to step into a restaurant two or three days after the fast is over. Somebody said, the day of the fast, the day the fast is. At 12 o'clock, I'm at White Castle. But listen, you're going to step into that restaurant and a server's going to come. She's going to say, can I help you? And you're going to say, yes, this is what I would like. And she's going to take down your order. He's going to take down your order. They're going to look at you and say, your food is going to be back with you shortly. And if you're smart, you're going to take somebody that you enjoy and somebody that you like to be in their company. And while you wait on that food, you're just going to be happy. You're going to be rejoicing for two reasons. Number one, it's good company. But the second reason, because you know that food is about to come. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. There is a greater chance. And the odds is greater that that waiter will not return to your table than there is that Jesus will not return. Every time you order, you have anticipation and you have a, a feeling of, yes, this food is going to come. Very rarely do you sit and, sit and wonder, are they really going to bring my food? Now, after a few minutes, you may wonder, when are they going to bring my food? But you don't wonder if they're going to bring your food. Well, as Christians, we got to live with the same expectation. We have to live daily knowing that Jesus has come. And he came with a plate to serve us. He came with a menu and he says, if you follow me, if you love me, if you submit your life to me, I'm going to come again. And when I come, you shall reign with me. So the next time you're at a restaurant, think about the second coming of Jesus. When they say, I'll be right back, remind yourself that Jesus said, I'll be right back. The second, the second thing that we can rejoice over from this text is not only can we rejoice over his coming, but we also can rejoice over his character. Look at the passage. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. He said, he points to his character. He points to his person. He says, this coming king. This coming king has an attribute that you all want. You want it because you know that the rest of the kings that have come, very few of them has had this attribute. And you know what that attribute is? He's righteous. 
He's righteous. He's not going to live for himself. And when God was given the law, he told Israel that when you're king, when you do select a king, because he knew, he knows all things. He knew that they would rebel against him. He knew that they would one day say, we want a king like the other nations. He said, when your king comes, you tell your king to refer back to this law. And you tell your king that your king is not to, uh, to rule over you harshly. And you tell him that he's not to have uh, a, a, a big number of horses. And he's not to build up uh, a whole treasure of gold and silver. See, Israel's king was supposed to be different from the rest of the kings of the world in that they were supposed to show people what servant leadership looks like and what humility looks like and what righteousness looks like. But every king, just about, well, every king that Israel had completely ignored that law in Deuteronomy. And every king took for themselves many wives and many treasures. And as a result of many wives and many treasures, every king at some point in their reign got a hard heart. Yes, Josiah was a good king. David was a good king. But really, when we look at it, they were not righteous kings. You know why? Because there is no such thing as a righteous person. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David in the psalm quoted by Paul says, There is none who is righteous, no, not one. There's only one exception to that rule, and that is Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who is righteous. And he said, Israel, look up. The king that is coming is a righteous king. He's a king that is not going to live for himself or for his own wealth and his own treasures on earth. But he's a king that is going to live for his father. For the one in whom he serves, Israel God, Jehovah. Jesus is the only one who perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus says, I have not come to change it, but I've come to fulfill it. He is the only one who kept every single law in the law of Moses, even down to the last iota. Jesus was so righteous and so pure and so bad that he walked up to some strong men, some, some, some manly men, and even some rich men, some tax collectors, and all he said was two words, and they followed him. All he said was, follow me. Could you imagine how righteous a person must be for them to come to you on your job? Perhaps you've seen them, you've hung out with them a couple times, and, and you're getting to know them, and you hear people talking about how wise this person is and how right. Could you imagine that person just coming to you and saying, listen, quit your job today, I've got another job for you, and walking out? Very few of us will follow them, unless... <laughs> There was something peculiar about that person. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was perfect. He was, he was sinless. And the Bible says not only was he righteous, but he, he is the one who has salvation. It says, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. When we read in the Gospels about this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we read about how the people took branches off of the trees and went to the field and got branches. And we read about how when they see him coming into the city, how they threw these branches down and how they began to rejoice and they began to praise God. And they began to call him Lord and they began to say Hosanna, which is a prayer of endearment. 
Specifically, when it's used in the Bible, it's a prayer that says, Lord, save us. It's not a Lord, save us as in, Lord, we're hoping that you will save us. It's, it's a Lord, save us like, Lord, we know that you can save us. Lord, we've seen what you've done with the blind. We've seen what you've done with the broken, and we're praying that you would do the same thing for us, that you would even save us as a nation and restore us. Having salvation. Jesus is the only one who has salvation. Jesus is the only one who was righteous enough that he could save us from our sins. Our first mission trip to Costa Rica, me and my wife, uh, went on this mission trip together. It was our first mission trip. It was in 2006, and we got to Costa Rica. We met the missionaries and the people that we were going to be serving for the week. And uh, they told us, they said, well, today we're going to have an intense week, but today is going to be kind of the, uh, one of the best days of the week. Uh, we're going to take you to a really, really nice restaurant. And we said, cool. And they put us in a, a van. Uh, we met the van driver, and we're driving up the road, and he says, okay. Uh, he says, I don't want you guys to be scared. We're going to have to go up this. It, he called it a hill, but it was more like a mountain. And we began to go up this hill. We began to go up this mountain. And it was, it took a lot of faith. Uh, it was a very narrow road. It was only one way up and one way down. He said the only thing on the top of this hill was this restaurant. But he said, it's going to be worth it once you get there. So I'm sitting there praying in faith that we're going to make it. And every time he has to hit the gas a little harder to get up, and we feel that gravity pushing us back, I'm thinking, like, really, is this the best restaurant that we could choose? (laughs) But we finally made it to the top, and when we made it to the top, it was just the most beautiful and scenic uh, scene, uh, thing that I've ever seen. Me and my wife, we weren't courting at the time, but I have to thank that missionary because I'm sure that that helped us get the Google eyes for each other. <laughs> we were sitting next to each other in the clouds. We were so high, you could, we just was overlooking the city. They brought out some, some good food. I won't go into it because I know you're fasting, some of you. But I tell you, going up that narrow way was, so, was sure worth it once we got up there. It was sure worth it. One way up, one, one way down. You know, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is righteous. And Jesus, when he walked this road and as he was living his righteous life, he let people know straight up, listen, I am the only way to the Father. There is no other way but me. There is no other way to heaven but through me, a very narrow way. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus came to the earth to redeem us. God himself stepped into human history in order to redeem us from our sins. But in order to redeem us from our sins, him himself, he had to remain sinless. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, even though the journey is not easy, and even though the journey uh, at times is difficult and hard, when we put our trust in him through faith, we have a promise that one day we will reign with God in glory. But see, this is what's unique to Christianity, because Christianity is the only religion that looks to a person for salvation, specifically looking to that person and not to their own works. Every other religion is works-based. You go to Hinduism, it's works-based. The way in which one is saved is by what that person can do or what that person can refrain from doing. Christianity is the only religion that is not about what you can do, but it's about you having faith in what someone else did for you. 
and that someone else is God. So when we think about Islam and we think about, uh, as we think about Israel, if we was to talk to a Muslim and you was to say, man, what do you have to do to be saved? They will tell you, well, well we, in order to be saved, we have to do the five pillars or we have to keep up with five things. And the first thing that we have, to, the first pillar is that we have to believe in Allah. We have to believe that he is the only God and we have to believe in Muhammad, his messenger. Then they'll tell you the second thing that we have to do is we have to make sure that we perform our daily prayers five times a day. We have to make sure that we keep up with this prayer time. The third thing that we have to do is we have to make sure that we do intense times of fasting, specifically during a season known as Ramadan. The fourth thing that we have to do is we have to make sure that we are giving generously to charities and to the poor. And the fifth thing that we have to do is we have to make sure that at least once in our lifetime that we make a pilgrimage to Mecca. As you talk to them, about salvation, they're going to point to their works and what they have to do. And we can share with them, let me tell you what we have to do. Our salvation, us making it to the kingdom of God, is not based upon us keeping a list of rules. And that's why some people are so miserable, because they think that it's based upon their works and what they can do. But our salvation is based upon the grace of God, based upon God giving us a gift, It's based upon us just putting our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, realizing that he alone is righteous and he alone can perfectly keep the law. And as we look to him in faith over the time of our Christian walk, we can rejoice because we know that he is going to help us to not be sinless, but to sin less. This coming king is righteous. This coming king is the narrow and the only way to God the Father. This coming king did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And this coming king, this last attribute, is that he is humble. The Bible says that Jesus came in and that he entered into the city on a donkey. On a donkey. This is significant to Israel. Because Israel kings and their rulers were supposed to be marked, as I said before, by humility. Pagan kings, whenever you saw them, they were on a big grand horse, especially after battle. They would enter into a city on a white horse, the best horse that they could find. That was a sign of strength and a sign of arrogance. But in Israel, as we read the Old Testament, the righteous kings, they always rode into the city on a donkey. When we read the book of Judges, we read that the judges rode into the city after a battle on a donkey. When we read about Solomon during his coronation, uh, when he, gave, when he, when he uh, uh, gave the temple back to the Lord and dedicated the temple back to the Lord, guess what? He was riding a donkey. When we read about David on the animal, guess what we read? We read about him being on a donkey. So this is no surprise that when Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem and he's talking to his disciples, he says, listen, I want you to go to the, the next town over and I want you to get me a donkey and tell him that the Lord has need of it. It's no doubt that some of the people understood what this was about. This was us receiving our king. Jesus was blatantly saying, I am the king. I am the coming Messiah. I am the one that you have been waiting on. And I am unlike everyone else. I am humble. I'm humble. I'm humble. Jesus' kingdom was marked by his humility. Jesus' kingdom was marked by his righteousness. Jesus' kingdom was marked by the fact that he had salvation in his hands. And he's a king like no other king. Look at all these dictators. Look at all these rulers who want to be served. Look at our government, how they were talking about, listen, man, we're going to shut down the government for a day. We're going to shut until we can get this. And you look, at the, you look at CNN, and they're talking about shutting everything down. And then it came out that the only ones who was going to be getting paid is the, gover- the, the, the governors, is the Senate, excuse me. Here they are making over $250,000. They're going to cut off people who are on Medicare. 
and Medicaid. They're going to take the money that, uh, that for, for, for other people, normal people who are working, but they're going to take the money themselves. And look at other nations. And we look at their rulers. They're marked by their army. They're marked by their strength. But when we look at our Savior, he was marked by his humility, by his lowliness, riding on a donkey. One theologian says it this way, a guy by the name of Thomas McKiskey, he says, the donkey stands out as the liberal rejection of this symbol of arrogant trust and human might, expressing subservience to the sovereignty of God. Jerusalem's king is of humble mien, not yet re- victorious. And so it has been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and savior. As we rejoice over Jesus, over his attributes, and over his humility, we, sh- we should rejoice knowing that God has called us to be the same way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we read that Paul says this about Jesus, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. By Jesus' humility, by his poverty, you are rich. As a result of his humility and his love for you, you have a chance at eternal life. And that's enough to rejoice over. Napoleon Barnabas, a, a great military strategist in himself, he says this about Jesus. He says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Alexander, Caesar. Carloman, and I founded empires upon force. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of people would die for him. This is a brood dictator. Acknowledging the fact that Jesus' empire was found on humility, it was found on love. We should rejoice over his righteousness. We should, we should rejoice over the fact that he has salvation. We should rejoice over his commitment to us to come humble, to put on human clothes and to die a death, yes, even a death of the cross. And finally, we should rejoice over his commitment, over his commitment. Look at the text. Verse 10, he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Remember earlier how I talked about how when you see prophecy in the Old Testament, you see a mixture of Jesus' first advent, which is his first coming, and his second advent, which is his second coming. So in the first part, we see in verse 9, we see them talking about Jesus' first coming and how his coming will be marked by humility. In the second part of of this uh, passage in verse 10, we see that he's talking about his second advent or his second coming. And he says, listen, when he comes, he says, uh, I will cut off, speaking of God, through Jesus, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And what is he talking about? He's saying, listen, when I come, when Jesus comes the second time, he's committed to doing two things. The first thing that he's committed to is he's committed to protecting you. He's committed to protecting you. When Jesus returns, it it means that his people will have the ultimate protection. That they no longer have to worry about fighting life's battles for themselves. And this is kind of the theme of chapter 9 through 14. As we go back to the beginning of uh, to verse 8 in chapter 9, we see that, G- that God 
has shown something great to Israel. During the rule of Alexander the Great, God says this. He says, then, after he takes over all these nations and raises up this king, he says, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. God, in the midst of talking about Alexander the Great and how he was going to take over all of these nations, he says, listen, when he's in the midst of his conquests, he will bypass Jerusalem and he will not touch Jerusalem because I am, will be encamped around it, meaning that I will be protecting Jerusalem. Now, as we read history and you read Alexander the Great's conquests, you see something interesting. Alexander the Great had no mercy on no one. He went from place to place, taking over, teaching them Greece, uh, uh, Greek culture in the Greek language. That's how in the New Testament, New Testament language is Greek because of his, his eventual uh, conquest. When, but listen, during that time, there was a season when Alexander the Great came up to Jerusalem. And for some strange reason, him and his men chose not to harm Jerusalem. In fact, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus said, and this may be clothed and, 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 a, and some, somewhat of a, a fairy tale, but he says that Alexander the Great came to the city of Jerusalem and he was so enormed with the peace that was there that instead of taking over the city, he went and offered sacrifice to the Jews' God. This great man, this great military strategist, came up to Jerusalem after wiping out all these places. And after coming to Jerusalem, he went north to Samaria and wiped out Samaria. But he did not touch Israel. Why did he not touch Israel? Because God told him not to touch Israel. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 21, chapter 1, that God has the heart of a king in his hand. And like the rivers of water, he can turn it any way that he so chooses. God is our protector. He was Jerusalem's protector. They were not taken into bondage because he made a decree. And you and I, we have to know that God has the heart of every man and every woman in his hand. And God is our ultimate protector. And when we make up our mind to be children of God, nothing can happen to us unless God decrees it and God allows it. I dare you to stop going to work scared and wondering if you're going to get laid off your job. Stop, stop kissing up to your boss, trying to be as nice as you can to save your job. Love them like you love everybody else and know that God is the one who has your job in his hand. Stop worrying about what might happen and worrying about what Satan might do and start thinking about what God can do. When God makes up his mind to keep somebody, he keeps them. That's why the Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He says nothing, distress can't separate us from the love of God. He says death can't separate us from the love of God. He says angels can't separate us from the love of God. He says nor can things past or things present. God's people has an ultimate protection, ultimate protection in Jesus. We don't have to live scared and we don't have to live worried, and that's now. But we also have to know at, at his second advent that Jesus is the one who will fight our battle for us. When we see Jesus coming, it means that peace is coming. He said, I will cut off the chariot at Ephraim. What does that mean? That means that there will be no need, no need, no need for war, for, for war materials. He said there will be no need for, for mighty horses. There will be no need for chariots because I am the one that will protect you from the enemy. I am the one doing my millennial rule that will make sure that peace is on earth. 
so there'll be no need. And that's how it was supposed to be from the beginning when we read in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, we read that when God told Moses to tell Israel about what's going to happen when they select the king, he said, listen, listen, Israel, I want y'all to get this. You're unique. You're special. When this coming, when you uh, anoint a king, and anytime you're getting ready to go in battle, I don't want you to go in battle like everybody else. I want you to go to battle in, in, in faith. He even tells me, he says, listen, put away your swords. He said, put, put away, put away your, your, your secular warfare. All you have to do is seek me and pray for me. And he says, and I will fight your battle for you. You remember, you remember in Joshua how the Lord told the Israelites to walk around the walls of Jericho. They didn't need no weapons. They didn't need no, no swords. They didn't need no bow. All they needed was their voice. All they needed was to shout to the Lord. And what I'm trying to tell you today is, is that if you would just start rejoicing and if you would start praising God, if you could just start thanking him for, for what he's going to do, for the fact that you know that he's going to come back, for the fact that you know his character, for the fact that you know that he's strong and mighty, if you would just lift up your voice and praise him, the walls will start coming down. Your weapon is your praise. Your weapon is your voice. When you step outside of yourself and say, mm, my God is good, I can rejoice. I can magnify him. I can glorify him. And when you understand that when praises go up, something begins to break, something begins to happen. In Isaiah chapter 61, we hear the, the prophet saying, listen, for the, for the spirit of heaviness, for the burden of heaviness, God has given you, he has given you a garment of praise. He says, whenever you're depressed, whenever you're down, whenever you're confused, whenever you're perplexed, whenever you just feel like giving up, he says, I dare you to take off that cloak of bondage. Take off that cloak of bondage and put on your garment of praise. Put on some hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Put on some, I never would have made it. Put on some, I know my redeemer lives. Put on some amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Come on, somebody. He says, I'll give you peace. A peace and a protection that passes all understanding. He said, that's my commitment. That you will no longer have to fight your own battle. And that you will no longer have to worry about somebody taking something from you. Because when I return, I'll restore all things back to the way that I intended it to. And that's why it's so amazing when we read Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, when the Bible says, and John has a vision, and he said, the heavens open. And behold, he saw a man sitting on a white horse. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to be on a donkey. He's not coming back humble and, and coming back to be crucified. But he's coming back on a war horse. And the Bible says that this Jesus, when he comes back on his war horse, that he's going to be clothed in righteousness. The Bible says he's coming back to make war on the enemy. The Bible says that he's going to have on a robe that has been dipped in blood. The Bible says that he's going to have on many crowns and on his garment that's going to say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible says that on his crown there's going to have a name, a name that's so magnificent, a name that's so wonderful that only he knows what it is. And the Bible said that his army will be clothed in white linen. That white linen represents his righteousness. But that white linen also represents the fact that they don't have to fight no more. They don't have to go to battle no more. And Jesus will defeat his enemies. 
And guess how he would defeat his enemies? Not with a bazooka, not with a missile. <laughs> the Bible says that he will open up his mouth and his word will strike down the pagan nations. The pagan nations. And peace will be on all the land. God has given you the same authority. He's given you the same power. He says if you just open your mouth, if you just have the word in your heart, if you just keep your mind stayed on me, he said, I'll keep you. I'll keep you in something that the world don't know nothing about. He said, I'll keep you in perfect peace. Someone here today who who was acting, who was acting just like, just like Egypt was, just like the protesters in Libya. Except you're not, you're not rejecting an a earthly king. You're constantly rejecting the king of kings. Your heart is in revolt against the one who created you for a purpose, to worship. And I'm here to tell you that you will find you will find joy, you will find peace, you will find security in no one else but the Lord. He is coming. Give yourself a chance to rejoice over that fact. His character is matchless. He's sinless. He's as gentle as a dove, but as wise as a serpent. He's perfect. But he also is committed. He's committed to giving you peace. Will you let him give you peace? Will you look in faith to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, to what he has done for you, to the fact that he took your sins on that cross, past, present, and future? Will you look to him in faith? Will you throw yourself at his mercy and say, Lord, whatever you want from me, whatever you need from me, Lord, I'm here, I'm yours. Will you make a commitment today to to stop trying to find fulfillment in lesser things and lesser kings and plug yourself into the source that can give you, that can give you purpose and give you energy. The Bible says in order to have Jesus as your Lord, that all one must do is to, they must confess their sins, confess the fact that you have fallen short, that you are not perfect, that you know that your sins will ultimately lead you to be separated from God for all eternity and suffering hell. To acknowledge the fact that you see that Jesus has come, that he has come for you in order to give you life and life more abundantly in him. To acknowledge the fact that one day he's coming back for you. And until that day, you're going to dedicate your life to live not for your own benefit, but for his. That is you here today, and you have never done that. We're going to ask the deacons to come at this time we're going to ask you to consider doing that. We're going to ask you to, to consider doing that. We're going to ask you to consider making Jesus Christ your Lord, your Savior. He is, the, he is truly the only one that's worth rejoicing over. That's worth rejoicing over day in and day out. He's the only one. Stand to your feet at this time. Father, we pray for the heart, for the person today who needs you. We thank you, Father, that you have given us a lot to rejoice over. We thank you, Father, for the truth 
that is presented in your word that your son is coming. And we wait in great expectation. And we cry to you, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.